Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me. I am so glad that you are listening in today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to the podcast to always get the next episode. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. A new minister was asked to teach a boys' class in Sunday school in absence of the regular teacher. He decided to see what they knew, so he asked, Who knocked down the walls of Jericho? All the boys denied having done it, and the preacher was appalled by their ignorance. At the next deacon's meeting, he told about the experience. Not one of them knows who knocked down the walls of Jericho. The group of deacons was silent until finally one seasoned veteran spoke up and said, Preacher, This appears to be bothering you a lot, but I've known all these boys since they were born, and they're good boys. If they said they didn't knock down those walls, well, I believe them. Let's just take some money out of the repair fund and fix those walls, and let's get on with things. Our response to life reveals how much of the Bible is truly a part of our lives. This week, we're going to address the importance of the Word of God. And I want you to be soaked in the scriptures. I mean soaked, not just sprinkled, not just a little bit wet from time to time, but soaked, drenched in the way that you feel water to the bone. Think about this being soaked a little bit more and to help you picture it. Well, we have our Labrador Retriever in our Walker household, and the Labrador is a breed of dog that is built for water. Labradors, they they have webbed feet, so they can swim really quickly. They also have a double coat, and that coat helps them stay insulated from cold and cold water. And we have found that this double coat makes giving the dog a bath a special challenge. Our former dog, which was a pug, little tiny little dog, was easy to bathe. Just a cup or two of water and she was thoroughly wet. Ten minutes more and we'd be done. Twenty minutes later, she'd be dry. A Labrador is a different story. Our Sophie adds an extra challenge. She loves water, and she'll dive into just about any puddle that she can find. However, if Sophie spots her bath towel or the dog shampoo, she will resist with every fiber of her being. Sophie somehow turns her 90 pounds of weight, which is a lot, into 200. I don't know if that dog has figured out how to alter gravity or what, but she makes getting into the tub an impossibility. But we do have a secret weapon, peanut butter. If we spread peanut butter on the wall of the shower, the dog will climb in and remain in the tub. Even for the next two or three days, she will go back to check for a snack in the bathtub. Well, once we have our dog in the tub, the real work begins. To really wash a Labrador, you have to rinse that dog until her coat is soaked. A sprinkling of water will not do. It takes gallons at a time. If you start shampooing right away, you will not be able to truly scrub her whole coat. So Sophie's bath goes like this. Phase one, entice her wind with peanut butter. Phase two of the bath is a drenching gallon after gallon of water over her coat. Initially, it just rolls off. It beads up a bit on her coat as well. But at some point, when your arm muscles start to burn from pouring all that water, you'll start to see her her coat of fur suck in the water. 
Now the dog is soaked, thoroughly wet. The water has gone deep. Now she can be shampooed. Now rinsing is also a challenge. That's phase three. Not only are your arms exhausted, but it takes gallons more to get the shampoo out of the deep layers of her coat. And drying, phase four, is an impossibility. We can towel dry her for half an hour or more. Go through a dozen towels if you want to. Rarely will she ever let us use that many, and Sophie will still be wet. Even if we dry her as much as we possibly think we can, she'll be wet for the next five or six hours. Sophie, our Labrador, at bath time, is the epitome of soaked, completely and totally, to the bone. It's hard to get it out of her. And that's what I want you to be when I say soaked in the scriptures. Get them into you deeply, not just a light sprinkle, not a quick rinse, but soaked deeply so that, so that the word of God permeates your life and so that it's not easily removed from your life. The scripture-soaked life is essential to your well-being. If you are a Christian, you need to take the Bible seriously. You need to soak in it. Now, when I say seriously, I don't mean joylessly or to read it in some sort of stoic manner, but knowing that the Bible is a matter of life and death, a matter uh, of the difference between thriving or, or being miserable. You must decide and make a stand. We only dip your toe in and play with the Word of God, or will you dive in and be washed by the Word of God, be soaked in it? Our text today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verses 5. It's a classic foundational text for the Christian faith and for our understanding of the form and function of the Bible. The occasion for the letter of 2 Timothy is this, Paul, he's in prison. He's in Rome, and he's writing a letter to encourage Timothy, and he wants to give him what he thinks might be his last words to Timothy that will strengthen him and encourage him and prepare him for a lifetime of faith and ministry. And part of that encouragement is Paul's call to soak in the word, be deep into it. Paul warns that there is a practice that will utterly prevent Timothy or anyone else from soaking their lives in the Bible. Our text today lays out two sides, and that's what the practice is. There's two sides that Timothy can joy, join when it comes to the Word of God. The first is the side that submits to the Word of God to shape, to convict, and grow Timothy according to God's will. The other side, it's the warning part, is one where you choose to dictate uh, what God's Word said, that God's Word must please the mind and affirm personal beliefs and feelings. This is the expectation that God's Word conforms to the shape of Timothy's or to our own convictions. No one who expects the Word of God to confirm to the shape of their convictions can live a Scripture-soaked life. It can't be done. Let's read the text from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 4, and listen for the description of the importance of the word, listening for the choice between submitting to the scripture, having it permeate your life, or dictating to the scripture. I think you'll hear them if you listen in the beginning and the end of the passage. So, let's begin in verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy and says, But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for the salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So I read that passage and I hear the question, are you submitting to God's word or are you dictating to God's word? When you submit to God's word, you come under his authority instead of your own. And submitting to God's scripture, to the Bible, means you give him permission to examine you, to judge you, to remake you. When you dictate to God's word, you'll get frustrated and your life will be disjointed. When you dictate to the Bible, the reality is you don't really let the Bible do anything to you or to your life. In the Bible is the power of God and you get to choose whether or not to let it in. Will you be soaked in the scriptures? The two ends of our text today lay out this choice. At the beginning, Paul calls Timothy to submit to the word, and at the end, Paul warns about those who dictate to the word. On the submission side of the argument, we read this. It's in 2 Timothy 3.14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it. Paul urges Timothy to continue in what he has learned. This is the instruction. This is in the instruction of the Bible uh, that he was given as he as he grew up. And now Timothy is urged to, and I'm emphasizing this, uh, emphasizing this to continue. If you're going to be soaked in the scriptures, you must continually swim in the depths of the Bible. Diving in is wonderful, but as soon as you get out, the water that has gotten on you will dry out, it'll start to evaporate. To remain soaked means you must stay in. You must dwell in it. You must continue in the word. Read it often. Surround yourself by people who are also journeying in the word, who want to have a scripture-soaked life. And Paul also uses a word that I like, convinced. Timothy was convinced of the Bible. And I like that word. It's a good friends or as the friends church were Quakers and Quakers speak of Christian conversion of following Jesus by using the word convincement. I was convinced of Christ. That is to say, I have encountered the truth. I have examined and I believe, but it must be deeper. Convinced means I know that there is no other alternative. This is it. I must do this. The scriptures that Timothy is convinced of, meaning this is the only way. This is exactly what Paul means, and we see it in verse 15. 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy is convinced in the authority and power of God in the Bible, and he knows that it reveals the salvation of Christ alone. Now for the side that tries to dictate to the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 read like this. We've already heard them. I'll read them again. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's tempting to read what we want out of the Bible. Often we do it without even realizing that we're doing it. Our own sense of right can mislead us. The sin nature has confused our sense of right, and you and I might feel certain about what is good or what is right or what's wrong, but we need that sense to be refined by the Holy Spirit and informed by the Bible. And informed by the Bible is different than asking the Bible to agree with what you are already thinking. And so many of us do that. We, we have an idea in our head, and so we turn to the Bible, and we go, I want to know if the Bible agrees with me. It's dangerous to expect the Word of God to match your convictions. Instead, submit to the Scriptures and let yourself soak in them. And to soak yourself in the Scriptures, there's a couple things that need to happen. First, you must understand what the Bible is. And Paul gives us a snapshot of God's design for the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He writes, All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that every so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. At the heart of our text is a phrase, all scripture is God breathed. This phrase deepens our understanding that the Bible is God's book. It's not just a record written by men and women who encountered God. It's not just a, the firsthand accounts of the followers of Jesus. The Bible is authored by God himself. It's not just a human hand writing words down, but divine authorship. The Bible is God speaking. The Bible is God speaking to humanity. And as such, we should pay attention to the contents of the Bible. Augustine of Hippo writes, The Holy Scriptures are letters from home. Letters from home are wonderful, aren't they? They're so encouraging. And he says, think of the Bible, think of the Scripture as our letters from home. We live in a world um, that Carl Jacobson describes as a golden age of storytelling. There's no shortage of stories about redemption, of life and death, about creation, about the end of the world, about sin. Modern storytelling is deeply attractive. The rise of streaming media shows how desirable this storytelling is. It's everywhere. And our world of media and story is no substitute for the truth of the Bible and the Word of God. Amy Carmichael writes, Never let good books take the place of the Bible. Drink from the well, not from the streams that flow from the well. And the Anglican giant Richard Baxter writes, Make careful choice of the books which you read. Let the Holy Scriptures ever have the preeminence. By all means, please enjoy good books, good music, good films, good media. 
But beware of giving their voices power over your life, where the Bible should have power, where God should dominate and rule. I suspect more and more people see the Bible as a book to be laid alongside the other voices of the world, to be weighed by those voices instead of seeing the Bible as the judge, or at least the Bible telling us about the judge of all those voices and claims of this world. God breathed. Let's go back to that phrase for a moment. It comes from the Greek combination word theonoistos. Theo is the word for God, and noistos is the word for breath or spirit. Noistos is used to name and describe the Holy Spirit. This book of God is divine. It's God-breathed. Now, something else is happening here with the use of that word. To say scripture is God-breathed heralds us back to the story of creation, the beginning. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read these words, Then God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the book, the Bible, that God uses to reach out to us is breathed by God as well. It's God-breathed. Just as we are given life by the breath of God, the God who made us, he knows just how to reach us. It's important to understand that the Bible is not just God-authored, but it is alive and active. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than in any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is not just an old book written by God. The Bible is not just an important history uh, Uh, for the history that it records, the Bible is active and alive and for you this day. Each time you encounter the Word of God, you're encountering it for you right where you find yourself now. The Bible is the primary way that God has chosen to reveal Himself to you and to work in your life. It is breathed to life and full of God's authority. The Word of God and the church and the, uh, with, I'm sorry, without the word of God, the church and humanity become blind. The Bible is God breathed. So, soak in it. And to soak in it, you must understand what the Bible does. And Paul shares four functions of the scripture. First one he says is that he says it makes you wise for salvation. It's there in 2 Timothy 3.15. When he's talking about Timothy, knowing the Bible, he says, How from infancy you have known the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It does not say that the Bible is salvation. It says it makes you wise for salvation. Timothy Dwight writes, The Bible is the window in this prison world through which we may look into eternity. It allows us to see Jesus. There's a story of a thief and a priest. And the thief was holding up the priest and he demanded uh, that the priest hand over his valuables and they saw the priest was carrying some books and he demanded that the priest burn all the books. And the priest asked him if he could read a little bit from each book before burning and what the books were were Bibles. And so the priest opened up one book and read Psalm 23 and the brigand, the thief would say, well, that's good. Give that book to me. And after a while, the, the priest would say, okay, well, I want it from this book. I want to read another passage. And he'd read 1 Corinthians 13 about love. And the brigand would say, well, that's a good book too. Give me that one. And after a while, the thief went off into the darkness with those books and disappeared. 
Years later, that thief turned up again, this time as a Christian. And not just as a Christian, but as a priest himself. It was reading those books that he stole that he changed. He found Christ. Now, the Bible can't not, cannot save, uh, but it makes us wise to Jesus who does save. All Scripture points us to Jesus, and we should read it expecting to meet with him. The second thing that Paul points out about Scripture, he says it's useful for teaching. This is more than just making a checklist of right doctrines. Certainly, you should seek to understand the essentials of orthodox theology, just basic good theology. But in the end, teaching is more than acquiring knowledge. It's finding and hanging on to the key of eternal life. It's how to live. The great preacher Alexander White, when he was too old to mount the pulpit and preach, would rise every morning to prepare a sermon, even though he never preached them. He did so until the day he died. He was convinced that the study of the Word was essential to saving himself. And he went to 1 Timothy 4.16 to find that. I'll let you go there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes these words, Because I am a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and the Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon firm ground of the Word of God. And as a Christian, I learn to know the Holy Scriptures in no other way than by hearing the Word preached and by prayerful meditation. Third thing that Paul mentioned is that Scripture is useful for rebuking and correcting. It's impossible to righteously govern the world without God and the Bible. That's a quote from George Washington. I'll read it again. It's impossible to righteously govern the world without God and the Bible. You need it. You have to have it for rebuking and correcting. Life is complex, and it's full of a variety of needs, desires, and obstacles that need to be overcome, and we need a guide. The Bible is God's handbooked guide for you. Here's the issue. It's a guide, and it's easy to mistake guiding for pointing out all of a person's flaws. And, and here's what I'm getting at. It's, it's human to find fault. But God is not content with just finding fault. He offers restoration. Our seeking of God's word is incomplete if it ends only with finding fault. I want to be clear about this. This text, this Bible, the Bible uh, does not say, or, or this text from 2 Timothy does not say that the Bible is useful for finding fault. It is useful for convincing a person of their errors and pointing them on the right path. Another way to look at it is that rebuking is not telling someone how bad they are, it's setting someone aright. The Bible is not just a point out what is wrong, it points to life. And so should every Christian. Sometimes we get too good at pointing out problems instead of pointing out life and healing and restoration. A third thing that Paul brings out, or actually it's the fourth thing, I, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's the fourth thing we're on here. The Scripture is useful for training in righteousness. The study of Scripture takes us out of our selfish ways. Paul insists that the study of God's Word leads to good works, not doctrinal maturity. We will grow in knowledge, but with a purpose, good works. You must let the Bible do its work in your life by soaking in it. It's a story of a, 
of a couple of parents, uh, a family. Um, they sent their son to Duke University, and uh, the parents gave him a Bible, assuring him it would lead to greater help, would lead to great help. Uh, later, he started sending them letters home, telling about how life was going in college, and then he said, I, I could use a little extra money, and they would write back telling him to read his Bible. And he'd reply that, yeah, I'm reading my Bible, and, and I, I still need help. I need some money. And so they'd write him other letters, and those letters would say, just read your Bible and try this chapter and this verse. And when he came home for semester ba- break, his parents told him they knew that he had not been reading the Bible. And how? They had tucked money, $10 and $20 bills into the verses that they had cited in their letters. <laughs> you got to get in it. That's not why we read the Bible, but it is funny how we often say we believe the Bible, we often say we read the Bible, but perhaps we make the claim more than we're actually in it. Hmm. Back to the question. Are you soaking in the Word? Are you submitting to the Word? Or are you dictating to God and to, to His Word? Are you trying too hard to tell God how He's supposed to work through His Bible? It's interesting. It's so fun. funny. We can often approach the Word and say, I know how this is supposed to work. There's a story here, a fascinating story. It goes like this. He was one of the greatest rulers in African history, creator of modern Ethiopia. He was born in 1844. He was captured during enemy raid and held prisoner for 10 years. But escaping, Menelik II declared himself head of the province, province of Shiva, and he began conquering neighboring kingdoms and developing them into modern Ethiopia with himself as the emperor. When Italy tried to, to take over Ethiopia, Menelik's army met and crushed the Italians at the Battle of Adua. This victory, as well as his efforts to modernize Ethiopia with schools and telephones and railroads, made Menelik uh, Menekil, sorry, world famous. The emperor had one little known eccentricity, though. He treated the Bible in a strange way. Whenever he felt ill, he would eat a few pages of the Bible, insisting that this would always restore his health. One day, December 1913, he was recovering from a stroke and he felt terrible, and so he had the entire book of Kings torn out from an Egyptian edition of the Bible, and he ate every single page of it, and he died. We might fill our lives with God's word. But if we do it on our terms instead of God's, it will lead to death instead of life. Augustine of Hippo again says this, If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And Gypsy Smith told a man who said he had received no inspiration from the Bible, although he had gone through it several times, he said, Let it go through you once, replied Smith, then you will tell a different story. We can go through the Bible all we want looking for hope, but we have to let it go through us. And you need to read the Word, but are you letting it read you? That's a question I like to ask a lot. Are you letting the Bible read you? Are you letting God read you through the Bible to show you who you are? Our text today tells Timothy that he will stand before Jesus, the judge, and you will give an account to him. And Jesus is the judge who will pass the final sentence, but the but the word of God right now is judging us. There's an unknown writer who wrote these words. I think they're good for us to think about as we finish our time and thinking about soaking in the word. He writes, or she writes, This book is the mind of God. 
It's the state of man. It's the way of salvation. It's the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is is its grand subject, and our good is its, is its design. The glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine, a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life of Christ, and yes, to glory itself for eternity. Scripture is God's word. It's God-breathed, and it's for you today. It's time for you to be a person of the book, to soak in it and meet with God. Will you do this? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus, the author of salvation, and thank you for making him clearly known to us through your word, the Bible. Help each of us to soak in your scripture, seeking to know you more and more. Help each of us to be known as people who are serious about your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.